You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, a company that allows you to sell a product from home and quit your job, financial freedom, dream vacations, it all sounds perfect, right? We explore the very tall pyramid of Lou LaRoe, the danger in being defined by the moment. An idea of an afterlife is a comforting thought for most people, but it's not an afterlife you ever really expect to come back from. But Dave, if you can manage it, there may be a pretty nice payday in store for you. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, being a millennial who is connected uh, through social media to Facebook, um, what has been your experience with pyramid schemes, or I guess that's an offensive term, so maybe multi-level marketing <laughs> firms? You and I actually joke around about this all the time, that we've had multiple people through the years from high school that maybe we barely knew. Hopefully we barely knew. If a friend's doing this to you, they're not really your friend. That they would message us and be like, hey man, how you been? And we would then text each other and go, oh dude, it's coming. It's coming. And then a couple messages later, it would say, hey, you ever wanted to make a couple quick bucks on the side? Or, hey, you ever wanted to be your own boss? Yeah, I think most people have some sort of experience with it, especially if you're in that age demographic where you were kind of on Facebook and you were in your 20s or your 30s. And uh, there's actually a new docuseries on Amazon Prime right now titled Lula Rich, which I've been watching through. And it really got me thinking about the story of really one of the most famous of the multi-level marketing firm era that I think maybe we're sort of coming out of now. I mean, what's that like for you? Are you still getting hit up for uh, pyramid schemes or has it kind of gone cold? Yeah, I don't really get hit up as much, but there are still people on my social media timeline that are constantly recruiting. And they always do it under the banner of, now, you don't have to do this. You want to change your life or not? (laughs) I think think there's some legal uh, precedent there. Maybe they have to sort of say it like that, but not 100% (laughs) sure. LuLaRoe is probably the most famous of the multi-level marketing firm businesses that really dominated Facebook in particular for a number of years. And many women, particularly millennial women, are very familiar with the structure of the company. So before we get into that, though, let's go way back to the beginning. So what is LuLaRoe? Started in 2013 by Deanne and Mark Stidham, the company, which was named for their first three granddaughters, began as a maxi skirt operation built out of their home, but it continued to expand, eventually hooking over 80,000 independent retailers uh, that were used to sell their clothing. And LuLaRoe primarily targeted stay-at-home mothers to sell their products, advertising selling LuLaRoe as an opportunity to earn income while raising children at home. And LuLaRoe would essentially would operate as a wholesaler. They would sell their product in bulk to an individual retailer who would pony up the money to cover the inventory, and then they would sell it to others in their social circles to make a profit. So this could earn you money, sure, but if you really wanted to strike it rich with LuLaRoe, you would recruit friends to sell the product themselves. And if you did this, you would earn a percentage of their sales in a bonus check. 
But even better, if they recruited someone, you would earn money on that recruit's sales as well, and so on. Being on top of a LuLaRoe pyramid could be lucrative. Many of those who really got started on the ground level and saw a lot of the early recruiting cashed in big time. And LuLaRoe wasted no time advertising these women to other hopefuls by plastering social media with LuLaRoe's all-stars on vacations, in huge suburban houses, on cruises, in nice cars and clothes, with the underlying message screaming that this could all be yours too if you only tried hard enough. But the reality of the situation, as it has kind of always been in most of these pyramid scheme type setups, was that wealth was not really as equally accessible as it was portrayed. Uh, As Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson puts it, this structure allowed two LuLaRoe retailers, who each had hundreds of recruits in their downlines, to make more than $5 million in profit collectively between 2016 and 2019, while at the same time, more than a third of retailers reported losses. At one time, specifically the heyday of LuLaRoe, which was right around 2016, It cost upward of $5,000 to start up a branch of the business. And LuLaRoe encouraged women to move any mountain possible to come up with the money. Encouraged women to use credit cards, take out loans, even sell their breast milk to scrape together the cash. Promising that the financial... (laughs) Sounds legit. (laughs) (laughs) It's a thing. Maybe we'll do another segment on the breast milk market. We really should. There's 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 a black market for breast milk. There really is. We'll come back to that later. But the LuLaRoe promised that the financial windfall would cover all this temporary loss. The company put together massive events for sellers and publicly sent their top earners on cruises or gave them vacations. And the wait list to join the company grew to thousands of names. And in 2016, get this, Dave, LuLaRoe reported nearly $2 billion in sales. But this money machine ran over many women at the base level of the pyramid who suffered financial pain and even ruin to support those at the top. Messages from the company that were meant to be framed as empowering really kind of shamed women into buying into the system, emphasizing that women were meant to stay at home or that if you're not wealthy from LuLaRoe that you aren't trying hard enough. And the documentary contains several personal interviews with women who tell stories of their finances and their marriages and their self-esteem and lives being torn apart by LuLaRoe. The solution to feeling like you weren't making the sort of money as the women at the top was the company gaslighting you into doubling down financially on the investment and then use people in your social circles or your workplace or your church to climb the ladder. Women were expected to sell off their product, and if they couldn't, they were stuck with it. Women would then feel pressured to host more parties, hit up more friends on Facebook, or sell at work to move the inventory. And LuLaRoe did not do the sellers any favors by sending mixed inventory boxes that were full of many clothing pieces buyers weren't interested in with only a few high-demand items mixed in. Sellers would have to buy more inventory to stock high-demand items while stacks of unsold leggings and shirts piled up in the garage. Since 2016, over 50 lawsuits have been filed against LuLaRoe, including a civil lawsuit filed in Washington state for the company operating as a pyramid scheme, a lawsuit that LuLaRoe settled with Washington in February to the tune of $4.75 million. If you were wondering, Dave, yes, LuLaRoe is still in business. 
but most of the high-dollar influencers are no longer selling. According to LuLaRoe's own website, in 2020, over 50% of retailers made less than $5,000 in sales. So the future of the multi-level marketing firm looks murky from a cultural standpoint, but also from a legal one, as governments look to crack down more and more on these business structures, which typically only benefits a few at the expense of many. So this is from October 2021. So this just happened. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, says 99% of multi-level marketing participants lose money. But you could be your own boss, though. Think about that. You could. So I actually, there's something I want to talk to you about. We'll talk about it off air. Um, But I think you're going to want to hear me out on this. Make some some extra cash. Jay, things happen in life, right? Good and bad. These things shape us into who we are ultimately going to be. Like it's the small things, the ins and outs of the day that start to define who we are. But as a collection, right? Like on the positive side, just because you were the employee of the year doesn't mean you'll always be the employee of the year. You can't always be the best. On the flip side, you aren't a failure just because maybe you got fired from a job once. It might be a bad moment, it might be a good moment, but Jay, it can't be the prism that you view yourself through forever. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as I get older, and I think a lot of people are in the same boat, I've I've tried to be a lot more present in moments, trying to recognize when something really positive is happening and try to kind of just be there for a second. And, And as hard as it is to be in the moment, it's also hard not to define yourself by the moments, the good and the bad. And Jay, you and I are both big sports fans, and and unfortunately, sports can very often lead people to be what is called victims of the moment, meaning that maybe a guy has a great game and you overvalue him as an incredible player, or maybe a guy has a lousy game and the sports media says that he's washed up, he's done, he stinks. But some moments, some bad moments, live on forever. This week, we're going to discuss a collection of moments, especially one that defined a guy named Frederick Weiss for a long time. That moment, and Jay, as you know, I got an A in advanced French in college, so I should be fine pronouncing this one. That moment is referred to as the Le Dunk de la Mole, or the Dunk of Death for you English speakers out there. This would be the image most closely associated with the phrase, he put him on a poster, or the word posterized. Jay, we are going to talk about a moment, a dunk, that became the most famous image of one man while becoming the most infamous moment and image of another. In 1999, with the 15th pick in the first round of the NBA draft, the New York Knicks took Frederick Weiss. If you're scratching your head trying to figure out who that is, in 1999, Knicks fans were too. The seven foot two vice wasn't even present at the draft, not thinking he'd be taken nearly that high. So he was blissfully unaware of the boos that Knicks fans, who historically hate most of the team's draft picks, had showered down from the rafters after his name was called. Knicks fans had preferred that the team draft a guy named Ron Artest, a complicated guy in his own right, and maybe he deserves his own episode down, down the line, who was a local kid from Queens, New York. The anonymous Vice wasn't even on anyone's radar. Vice showed up in New York that summer to play with the Knicks Summer League team after being drafted. A run marked by very few minutes 
and even fewer positive in-game moments. And Jay, under the very poor guidance of his former agent, a guy named Didier Rose, who would actually go to prison later on, also a story for another time, Vice did not sign the standard NBA rookie contract, which is unheard of with the Knicks. Instead, he opted to return back to France to continue to play and hone his skills. And in the process, he cost himself his shot. Vice never got another chance to play in the NBA. And that trip back to France would ultimately lead Vice to the moment we're talking about, the dunk of death. And soon thereafter, it led to a brush with his own actual death. Over 21 years ago, Jay, on September 25th, 2000, Team USA faced off against Team France in a basketball game during the Sydney Summer Olympics. France's starting center, Frederick Weiss. Team USA's brightest shining star, one of the most celebrated NBA players and especially dunkers of all time, a guy by the name of Vince Carter. After stealing the ball during the game, the six foot six Carter drove to the basket, spread his legs, and flew. Jay, he didn't leap, he flew over the seven foot two Vice. The famous dunk took over the Olympic headlines and was dubbed the dunk of death by the French media the next morning. The image of Carter flying over Vice has been viewed tens of millions of times online and has become one of the most famous sports photos of all time. I knew he could jump, Vice said after the game, but I didn't know he could jump over me. Everybody will know my face now, or my jersey number at least. It's going to be on a poster for sure. And Jay, while Vice was correct about the ongoing impact of the Carter dunk, the iconic moment of shame coming on the heels of the NBA draft nightmare put Vice on fragile ground. Just two years later, Vice and his wife would have a son with severe autism that led him to a battle with a new kind of depression. It wasn't long before Vice was out of basketball altogether, drinking way too much, and spiraling quickly out of control. It all led to 2008. Vice drove out to a rest stop, intentionally overdosed on sleeping pills, and tried to take his own life. Thankfully, Jay, the suicide attempt failed. Vice got help. He reconciled with his wife, and he got his life back together. It's an ongoing process that still continues for him today. But Jay, while the dunk of death didn't solely lead Vice to attempt suicide, it was the most public moment in a life that just didn't go as planned. And over 20 years later, Jay, Vice is still learning how to take the moments in his life in stride, including the moments he's yet to have with his son. Moments he hopes one day involve a home for his family at his son's favorite place, the beach. The tide makes my son Enzo happy, Vice told the New York Times, and so I want to take him there. I want to let him run out with the ocean because he loves it. He loves to feel like he's running on top of the water. And Jay, finally, over 20 years later, Vice has maybe stopped running from the dunk that has come to define him and instead embraced it as a moment that just happened, one of those moments that's part of his life, not his whole life. Yeah, this story is so similar to um, the story of Brandon Bostick. He was a uh, player for the Green Bay Packers in 2015, and uh, 
that was the year that the Packers were beating the Seahawks for most of the NFC Championship, and then um, the Seahawks made this wild comeback, and in the last couple minutes of the game, uh, were able to recover an onside kick because Brandon Bostic got out of place and jumped to try to grab the ball and accidentally deflected it into a Seahawks player's hands. And so they ended up getting to go to the Super Bowl because of that play. And it just completely ruined his life. He was getting death threats and just like anything I've ever read about Brandon Bostic is that he's he's at peace now, but it took him years to be able to shed all that weight and kind of find himself again. So Dave, I know you... Uh, are in the car a lot. You listen to a lot of uh, audiobooks and podcasts and things like that. But when you finally get down to uh, read a book to add to the audiobook collection, uh, what type of books are you getting into? Fiction, nonfiction? It's really almost all nonfiction. I-, I feel like I have to try to learn something fiction, even though I love like fairy tales and stories and and you know crazy fake worlds <laughs> you're sort of uh, waving like your kinda... hands around like you're making fun of <laughs> exactly because i feel like i'm well no i feel like i'm kind of wasting my time <laughs> especially if there's a movie that already exists because why would i read it when i could just watch the I movie i so... feel your wife like stewing listening to this like through the, through <laughs> yeah, the yeah, she hates that um <laughs> well i'm gonna tell you about a genre that i don't really know how to categorize of book called uh, heaven tourism so let me tell you a little bit about <laughs> what it is first and then <laughs> and then we'll, i guess we can decide kind of how to categorize this at the end and you know most authorities on religion agree that heaven is a place you'd most definitely like to go but dave what if i told you that coming back from heaven had some pretty impressive benefits as well uh, for the past 10 years, recollections of heaven have made a handful of people quite a lot of money. Take Colton Burpo, for example, who, during a surgery while he was four years old, died momentarily on the operating table and, upon returning back to life, told of his time in heaven where he met Jesus, angels, and relatives who had passed on. Burpo's story was spun into the 2010 book Heaven is for Real, which actually sold 10 million copies and then spun off again into a major motion picture and produced children's books, talk show appearances, and even speaking gigs. Eden Alexander, a neurosurgeon who wrote Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife after a similar experience, enjoyed a spot in the New York Times bestseller list for 35 weeks. And for Alex Malarkey, who tells his heaven story in The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a trip to heaven was extremely profitable, one million copies worth of profitable. But in 2015, Malarkey's tale in particular began to fall apart, which led to his publisher pulling... First of all, can we just... Can we just comment on his last name being <laughs> so, Malarkey? I, just I know that that, that joke is right there, <laughs> but I'm not going to take it because it's too easy. So I'll let I'll you take it. it. That's fine. <laughs> so the publisher pulled the book after he posted a statement that read, and I quote, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I just said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Malarkey and others mentioned before Uh, really embody this emerging genre called heaven tourism, which is where a writer will tell a recalled event of dying, going to heaven, and then coming back to earth. Terrence McCoy at the Washington Post has compiled a list of the more successful entries to the genre. I'm going to list them off here for you, Dave. To Heaven and Back, A Doctor's Extraordinary Account of Her Death, Heaven, Angels, and Life Again, A True Story. 
90 Minutes in Heaven, A True Story of Death and Life, A Vision from Heaven, Revealing Heaven, An Eyewitness Account, Waking Up in Heaven, A True Story of Brokenness, Heaven, and Life Again, and My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life. These books often share very similar qualities. Jesus, Mary, and angels are typically always in human form. Relatives who have passed on are always present. And Jesus typically gives the author a message to take back to earth. And to be clear, Dave, these works are not marketed as works of fiction. They are marketed as real-life experiences, firsthand accounts of the afterlife. But what you can't deny is the success This genre of book can be lucrative, and many are incredibly successful within the pretty large evangelical community of America. So the question is in the middle of it all, really, is how sincere are the writers? Robert Gottlieb of the New York Review of Books says it this way. The tale of Colton Burpo, so slickly told and efficiently exploited, poses the immediate question, of course, are the Burpos sincere or is this fraud? Despite all the commercialization... I believe that they believe that little Colton said things that he thought to be true and that were shaped into this artful nature by an astute collaborator. But the question I have about all this, Dave, is what do the leaders of the evangelical community like church pastors think of this sort of literature? Well, as with most things, it's kind of complicated. Many pastors think the stories can bring feelings of hope or joy, but many others believe that these accounts are exploitive and don't really jive with Christian teachings that pretty definitively say that heaven is a place you don't really come back from. Phil Johnson, the executive director of Grace to You and pastor at Grace Community Church, one of the largest churches in America, says it this way, These books are coming out with such frequency that it is virtually impossible to read and review them all. But that shouldn't even be necessary. No true evangelical ought to be tempted to give such tales any credence whatsoever, no matter how popular they become. One major obvious problem is that these books don't even agree with one another. They give contradictory descriptions of heaven and thus cannot possibly have any cumulative long-term effect other than the sowing of confusion and doubt. So, while heaven may sound like a place we all want to visit one day, Dave, I think it's definitely safe to say that there may be some serious benefits here on earth in just visiting for a few minutes if you can find the right publisher. As, as I like to do when you uh, give a great segment, which that was great, I, I like to look up some things about it. And so I was trying to find a picture of Colton Burpo, and it led to a bunch of other questions that had answers that Google popped up for me. Uh, and a couple of these are, are really important. So one of them's big for me. Can you go to heaven with tattoos? That came up. I have a bunch of tattoos. The answer is uh, yes. Tattoos don't prevent you from going to heaven. Uh, another one that I really enjoyed here, though, is uh, what was Jesus' favorite fruit? Uh, and Jesus' favorite fruit is actually figs. Did, so, did Colton ask him when he got up there? And, and I think it's it's from Colton. Yeah, Colton reported back that Jesus did like figs. In fact, he was eating figs when, when Colton Man, got there. 10 million copies. So are you, you going to watch uh, Heaven is for Real, the movie, at some point? Now, you know, I don't watch anything that's not fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I would, I would love movies. to know and what Heaven is for Real is on Rotten Tomatoes. Heaven is for Real is a 51. That's certified fresh. Is, no, no, it's not oh, fresh. Oh, it's 60%. Fresh that's right. Yeah, so it's rotten. Uh, and a uh, top review says, uh, says, you'd think any movie that an all-powerful deity had a hand in would be awesome. Turns out, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.